Hello, horse fans and fans of mysteries. Welcome to another episode of Horse Mysteries. Today we have more tales of mayhem and murder with a story that's called If Looks Could Kill. I'm David Dedrick. And I'm Lisa Williamson. And Lisa Williamson is the horse expert. I am but a mere dolt who's along for the journey, and I will act as audience stand-in. I'll ask questions like, what? <laughs> Why? And I'll say things like, huh? That's my role. Sounds good. If you want to start here, what's it called again? Uh, if looks could kill. Oh, okay. all right. The setting for this one is a little bit more vague, general than some of the other ones. So it's around 1979-1980. Okay. Okay. And the location is also more general throughout North America. <laughs> okay. It's general. <laughs> Pretty broad. Yeah. 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 So a lot of the West and the Southwest, mm -hmm. but extending up into Canada as well. horses started dying okay mysteriously yes mysteriously and additionally horses starting to get sick but then would spontaneously recover all right and because it was pre-internet time sometimes these things were happening in a very isolated way and oh. so people didn't really realize for a while that it was bigger than their own horse, right? But they, they were just, connected in some way. Yeah, yeah. People just thought, oh, I have this horse doing this weird thing. But it turns out, you know, two counties over or whatever, someone else had a horse doing a weird thing as well. Now, I'll just ask a question. Was this weird thing the Watusi? No. Okay. No. That was a guess. <laughs> what the weird thing was, um, it, it seemed to happen typically with young horses. Okay. So not... Um, so what age would that be? What age like would you call it? ish Okay. So two or three. So they were not babies, but they were, yeah, mature, but, but young. So okay. not seasoned horses. And can I ask another question? Yeah. Were these horses uh, used for a particular use? Were they racehorses or were they just... Any uh, kind of horse at all? Yeah, they're basically stock horses. Okay. So usually used for kind of Western pursuits. I see. Yeah. And so the the illness, the, it, fortunately, it wasn't a lot of horses that died, but it was certainly an outcome that could happen. And mm -hmm. for those that got sick, it was what they described as an episodic weakness. They would have uncontrolled muscular tremors. And yeah, previously, it would be uh, that the horse was considered very robust and very healthy. Okay. So this one, not a sickly animal. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of very shocking, very surprising. Okay. And so this one, one thing we've never talked about in the show, I don't think, is the fact that just because of the expense of research, there's a lot of elements, especially at that time, there's a lot of elements of horse illness that would have been unknown Mm -hmm. And especially, I would think, degenerative nervous disorders would have had maybe names that were kind of generalized, but nothing specifically. Yeah, a lot yeah. of it was, you know, things that traditionally people were familiar with, like colic or things like that, mm -hmm. that people had a better understanding of. But even from that time, problems like navicular, yeah. I remember learning about that around this time. And they're a lot more general now about what the problem is so yeah. it's called a syndrome now because they know there's sort of a multifaceted issue and it affects horses different ways mm -hmm. and um and treatments are the same they're kind of generalized as well mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. one person will have one kind of preferred treatment and a different vet or farrier would have a different idea of what's good for the horse yeah but yeah you're right about the research thing and that's not something i really had considered before but a friend of mine was doing a phd up at University of Alberta, mm -hmm. and her family had poultry, chicken farms. So yes. that was her specialty. Yeah. And she was the one who said, well, yeah, no money or next to no money is spent on horses because they're generally not used for food. Yeah. Like we spend all our research money on on animals, typically on those that you know we use for food production. Yeah. So, and I would even think the more expensive ones, I, I find it hard to imagine that chickens get much attention either as they're pretty much 
a waste product that can be quickly yeah uh, well, I, I think uh, her family um i don't know if they had like broilers or something okay. but i remember her talking about i didn't even realize it but you know their legs and how thick their legs are if you think about how big noisy's legs were compared noisy to was, babies was a chicken that we had that was a a, a, f a fully matured broiler that mm -hmm. was never used as a broiler yeah and almost the size of a turkey so she died of a natural death but she was intended to have yeah, been done away with at about four months of age yeah. so yeah. yeah she just kept growing and growing and growing but that kind of chicken they've had to breed into mm -hmm. them these massive legs to hold up their big bodies because they mature so quickly yeah yeah that's just yeah, something that yeah she had mentioned mm -hmm. and yeah it never occurred to me before but yeah not much money is spent on horses i think maybe a little bit more now but um this is about 10 years ago when i was mm -hmm. talking to her so yeah, yeah. i think there's been specific studies done in things like laminitis where they have you know, slowly kind of accrued knowledge through mm -hmm. smaller studies that have sort of over time given us a sense of what the mechanism is and things mm -hmm. like that, you know, whether it's doing like the the plastic resin into the into the arteries or veins of the foot in order to get a sense of how the, all the veins the and stuff work and the yeah, circulation yeah. in the mm -hmm. foot. Just things like that have slowly accrued knowledge, but even there, it's still kind of the same. It, you get to a certain point where it's this voodoo and everyone sort of decides on what works best for them mm -hmm. yeah. and follows that procedure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and another example, a more recent one, was the Connemara's with the hoof wall separation syndrome. Okay. And that one was, they kind of thought there was a link genetically, and again, it was sort of earlier pre-internet, predated the internet, and with, with the population of Connemara's being so small, they didn't really realize that it was an issue. They thought it was isolated mm -hmm. until one stallion came over from Ireland, spent a year in California, moved to Canada, spent two years here, then went back to Ireland and basically left in his wake a trail of all <laughs> these. And two big farms in Canada had done a lot of breeding to him. Yeah. And they were like, what is this? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then by that time, the internet was around and they started. And the one lady's son is... Uh, a researcher down at UC Davis. Okay. And so they were able to start, you know, fanning out and making connections and decided there was something possibly genetically. And so from that, fanned out to the breed organizations and were, you know, asking, but I think it had to come from the breeders themselves. I was going to say, it sounds like yeah. a ground up uh, situation. Very where much so, yeah. very much so. So yeah, there isn't a lot of cash involved yeah mm -hmm. with it so yeah and here we are you know and in, in this case in 1979 yeah so or yeah 40 years ago in a situation a situation where it's western so it's mm -hmm. kind of a lot of cowboys and yeah. a bit of a more rough and ready mm -hmm. sensibility yeah so um, glad i could give it some context carry on <laughs> yes okay good um yeah, so the other weird thing about this is, you know, we said they had muscle tremors and general weakness, yeah. um, which could, in, in severe cases, lead to the horse collapsing and dying. But while it was happening, the horses remained alert and conscious and kind of looking around like nothing's going on. Hmm. So, yeah, it was a very strange response. Um, and the episodes would only last for a very short time, so 15 minutes to an hour. There didn't seem to be any pattern as, as far as what the trigger was to it. And it was also very difficult to get vets, because of that, to come and observe because it was so short term, because they... It occurred unpredictably. The vets were having to kind of take the owner's word for what was going on. And then the horse would just return to absolute normal afterwards. No secondary effects. However, once they had had an episode, it turns out they would continue to have episodes. As we said, so very short-term nature of the episodes, unpredictability of the onset of the episodes. So having vets observe became very difficult that impeded the diagnosis. Um, horses that were affected could go months between episodes. And so they couldn't just bring them to the vet clinic and sit there and wait for it to happen again. Mm -hmm. It was just, yeah cost prohibitive. So the one of the original assumptions that it was some strange form of colic. And part of the reason is that some of the horses would sit down like a dog. And yeah, if you know anything about horses, when cows, for instance, 
get up after laying down. They get up bum first, and then their front legs get up. Um, horses do the opposite. Horses get up um, with their front end first, and then their back end gets up. So yeah. that's that's a, a temporary position for them. They never typically sit in that position like a dog would yeah, sit. Yeah. Um, Let's say fell over or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, with the exception of some horses with a particular kind of colic will dog sit just to try and relieve the pressure a little bit. And okay. so some of these horses with this... And what's colic? Colic. Okay, colic is just a bad... It's a general name for a bad stomach ache in a horse. Sure. And it is the number one killer of <laughs> horses because you can get intestinal impactions that, yeah, basically stop digestion. Um Lots of things can cause colic, yeah. and there's lots of different kinds of colic, but yeah, it is a very serious thing that mm -hmm. horse owners worry about. But it was originally thought to be colic because of the dog-sitting behavior. However, um, the horse was not really in discomfort, and colic is a painful thing. Sure. Yeah, they've sure. got a very bad stomach ache, and none of the other symptoms really fit with colic. Uh, the other thing about colic is you usually have to walk the horse for a while, and then get the vet out, and the vet does a bunch of stuff, whereas these horses, they would just spontaneously recover, mm -hmm. and again, in a very short time. So all of those were quite inconsistent with a diagnosis of colic. I'm going to say it sounds like malingering. Malingering. Yeah, yeah, they do sound kind of lazy. <laughs> laying around, sitting down. <laughs> okay, so then the next thing was uh, an ailment that's known as Monday morning disease. Now, do you know what that is? I get it every Monday. <laughs> uh, so Monday morning disease. Um, Monday morning disease is the old school term for it. Um, and then my generation's term for it was tying up or azaturia. Oh, okay. I know what um, that is. Yeah. Exertional rhabdomyolitis is the term for it now. Um, it rolls right off the tongue. Reason. Why call it tying up and you can call it <laughs> abduration? Abduration. That's what I said. Exertional rhabdomyolysis. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Anyway, so it's called the, I think it's interesting that it's called Monday morning disease because that's very descriptive of when it would happen. Sure. Because um, in the old days, of course, we had horses, I'm talking like pre-1900, horses were the primary means of moving freight. Sure. And, or just moving people. Yeah. And so... They were busy pulling wagons and carriages and everything basically Monday through Saturday. And then they would have Sunday off because Sunday was a day of rest. Yeah. And they would go back to work on Monday. And all of a sudden, all their muscles in their hindquarters would seize up. Mm -hmm. And they'd be unable to move. And they'd get very stiff. And potentially horses that had that problem could die if you forced them to keep going and made it worse. Yeah. Um, and those horses also became chronic with this problem. If you um, force them. If you, yeah. Or even once they get it, some horses, oh. they tend to get it well, over and over yeah. again. So you have to, you know, the best um, way to deal with it is to prevent it in the first place. Sure. So similar to laminitis, right? So basically, um, yeah, tying up though is generally associated with some kind of exercise, but the, the episodes these horses were having were not associated with exercise. Okay, so this was happening on Tuesday morning. <laughs> That's right. So the date was wrong. And so also, yeah, just the general environment in which the horse, so horses that were getting this problem tended to be getting it when they were just hanging around resting or if they were eating. Or if they were in a stressful situation, like having shipped somewhere, like to a new place, um, or a dietary change had been made, um, or if they had a concurrent illness, they would be more susceptible. So hmm. none of those were consistent with a diagnosis of tying up or Monday morning sure. disease. Um, the other thing about tying up is it generally had short-term or long-term muscle pain in the hindquarters. Yep. And yeah, again, we mentioned earlier that the recovery for this problem seemed to be quite spontaneous. The horse reverted to a normal state, usually within two hours, and could go hmm. and be ridden and seem totally normal. So I take it these different diagnos diagnoses were happening in different regions. So yes. different vets would approach it from a different point right. of view. Yeah. And I think and none some of them, of them were effective because it wasn't 
Right. And kind of like, you know, policing in different areas, right? Back then. Yes, you know, there there's no, no, there's no uh, yeah. shared, I mean, there was a shared knowledge pool, obviously, like all science, but unfortunately at that time it would have been much slower moving mm-hmm. and and then there wouldn't have been a shared immediate right. information of people yeah. saying, is anyone else experiencing this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so another thing they looked at were seizures. Were these horses having seizures? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, they were kind of looking at the muscle trembling, the fact that they collapsed. But um, because the horses were alert and conscious throughout, yeah. they're like, okay, they had to rule that out. So no seizures. No seizures. Also, horses don't like salad. That's right. And then uh, finally, they, they looked at um, respiratory issues because one of the other um, symptoms that, that was exhibited was that, especially with the horses that died or, or were extremely um, hard hit by this is it would cause respiratory failure. And so there would be um, respirational noise. Um, so they very loud breathers. And so people looked at, you know, is the horse choking? So horses have a very long esophagus. Obviously yeah. their necks are long. Um, and if they don't choose something properly, you know, like a big piece of carrot for instance it can get lodged in their esophagus mm-hmm. um so that's called choke uh the other thing is uh they looked at what used to be called copd or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or which is basically like allergies now mm. um, there's a new name for it but um i think most people know it as copd and so yeah it's equine allergies maybe these horses were having um you know, some kind of allergic attack that was causing the loud breathing. Um, and because a few of them had died of respiratory failure, but again, medically, they, you know, they took blood samples and tissue samples and they ruled that out. Over time, more and more horses began to exhibit the clinical signs Some owners were either unaware or just kind of, you know, many of these horses were on very large ranches and there was a lot. And so you're just like, okay, that horse is a write-off and people kind of didn't, either didn't even know or didn't care. Maybe thought the horse would kind of like my car, maybe it'll fix itself, whatever. Um, (laughs) Yeah. How's that working? (laughs) It hasn't worked. Yeah. And it didn't work with these horses as well. But yeah, they thought maybe... As more and more horses were seen to have this problem, a common sequence was noticed in the progression. So basically the horse would have brief muscle weaknesses that were accompanied by prolapse of the third eyelid or the nictitating membrane. So the horse has a third eyelid, which is just used to get rid of like dust and things okay. like that. So it would pull back. So that was one of the first signs. Okay. Um, <laughs> the horse would start sweating and exhibit the muscle tremors and they would often start in the face and then progress back through the body into the larger muscle masses in the torso and one of the areas in particular that they would happen was in the flank sure this is 79 yeah disco fever that's right that's what it was yeah obvious (laughs) okay yeah and sometimes the tremors would progress to other muscle groups too third thing was the horse could exhibit muscle weakness that ranged from either mild to severe and again in the more severe cases the horses would stagger they would sway they would dog sit or they could eventually collapse Hmm. and then the muscle cramping could be severe yeah uh, the horses would have an elevated heart rate during their episodes and an in increased respiratory rate. And as we mentioned earlier, often respiratory noises were noted. Yeah. And then the fifth thing was in the most severely affected horses, the breathing would basically become paralyzed and the horse would go into respiratory distress and then it would die. Wow. So, yeah. Almost like tetanus. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. <laughs> so I'm sure they looked at that too. Yeah. But, I um, imagine they did. Yeah. Okay, and so, yeah, the other kind of weird thing, because obviously, if you were a horse owner and you viewed this, it would be very traumatic for you, Mm -hmm. but probably made even more so because it was a horse that you wouldn't expect it to happen to. Because the majority of the affected horses were born healthy, they grew normally, there was no signs of ailments until the horse was usually at a mature height, usually about two to three years of age, and then the onset of this would occur. Yeah. yeah. 
And as we mentioned earlier, most of the horses were stock horse types. Sure. Um, and many of them were registered as quarter horses. But there were other registries affected like paints and Appaloosas and Palominos, as well as like quarter horse crosses. But sure. yeah, one of the things about paints and Palominos, they're often yeah, very closely related to quarter horses, if you don't know that already. Sure. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, they are. And the other thing about this is, uh, you had mentioned cowboys. Most of these horses were actually purpose-bred horses for the show ring, but they were not performance horses. They were intended to be, for the most part, halter horses. So, yeah, horses that you're going to stand... And the judge will kind of look oh, okay. at them, so and they're like supposed a bre- to be a breeding class kind of situation. Yeah, right? yeah. So this is supposed to be the physical ideal of what this breed is like. Ugh! No wonder there are problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that turns out to nothing, be nothing. Nothing. Nothing gets things worse than <laughs> having special breeding classes. Yeah. So yeah, these were halter horses, and they were sent off to training barns for conditioning and and their training and going to horse shows, and that's often when the signs started to be noticed okay. Yeah, okay. more frequently. So, okay. Well, you can, I was going to ask this question, but I'm just anticipating the story. Okay. Sorry. All right. So, yeah. So there's two primary environmental factors that were noted and they tended to revolve around diet and stress. Okay. Um, so by this time, enough horses were... We're seen to have this problem that, you know, vets were starting to get a bit of a Okay, more of a that's what I was going to ask. Was, yeah. is, was it starting to become so prevalent that it was starting to become a recognized problem mm-hmm. amongst different yes. areas? Or, a recognized say, problem, but, but not really a talked about problem. Okay. And that's, yeah, that's sort of the key with this thing. Mm. Like, mm. you've got a horse and probably you bred it to sell and you don't want anyone to know it's got a problem, right? <laughs> and so, Maybe yeah. that's a problem or maybe because vets weren't, understanding it they were having you know they were kind of stuck and they didn't know how to what to turn to yeah i think i think there's yeah a little bit of you know pride or whatever you can't figure out this problem and so i mean some people would consult with other people but other people would you know think oh it's me you know i can't figure this out what's the matter with this horse and you beat yourself up so yeah anyways there was a lot of complications and many of them came just from the climate of the clients and the people that were dealing with this, sure, these horses. Sure. So, but yeah, what they did find or vets did note that um, two primary environmental factors revolved around diet and stress. The horse having stress, obviously. I'm sure the, di- the veterinarian was having a stress too. And they're on a diet. Yes. So the veterinarian investigation turned up clues in the area of abrupt dietary change. So if the horse moved from one barn to another, so from its okay. home to a training barn, and diets that were high in potassium as well seemed hmm. to cause it. And then horses going through higher too, levels. Too many bananas. Yeah. Horses going through higher levels of stress, like being transported to a new place or starting training or when they were hungry, uh, it, or foaling, or an, under anesthetics, all of those seem to make a horse more susceptible. Hmm. Okay, so this is starting to take on the feelings of laminitis, where it's just endless amounts of causes of yes. something, where you're just kind of like, I feel like there's just no, there's no none of these make or make any sense. No, they're just like no, they're just he happened to be she was this at that time and she got laminitis. Oh well, that's a possible cause. Mm-hmm. Write that down on yeah. the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it yeah, it seems to be very, very broad yeah. what the what the cause was. So yeah, but the at the time, as we said, you know, at first it was very isolated and then people started to recognize there was an issue and so now we're at the point where it's increasingly obvious in the horse world yeah. that there is this issue. And again, many of these individuals are bred for the show ring and even probably worse, they were experiencing success in the show ring, um, especially with quarter horses. If you're not familiar with quarter horses, they have very impressive musculature, mm-hmm. so huge, huge muscle masses. Yeah. So, um, just so people know, quarter horses would be the sort of horses you'd see in kind of the rodeo situation, mm-hmm. uh, barrel racers, or, or um, I guess bucking broncos would be kind of would be quarter well, horses. Yeah, any often. any horse that you picture a cowboy riding typically would be a quarter <laughs> yeah, horse. So you know, yeah. that's a what we call the stock horse type. Yeah. But yeah, they're useful for lots of other things. And the quarter horse is actually it's called quarter horse because it's actually a race horse. Oh, I thought it was called a quarter horse because it was only one quarter horse. One quarter of a horse, yeah. So yeah, I had a horse that was a half quarter horse. So yeah, technically she was an eighth <laughs> of a horse. 
Yeah, no, a quarter horse is a horse that can run a quarter of a mile faster than any other horse. And oh, so okay, okay. They actually, I think, have been clocked at 53 miles an hour over a quarter of a mile, wow, which is fast. faster than a thoroughbred. Yeah, yeah. So they're actually the fastest horse. I always thought of the thoroughbred as being the fastest horse, but really the quarter horse is... They just is, have endurance for longer yeah, races. Yeah, so, but yeah, for very short... They're sprinters, so mm-hmm. they have that, you know, think of a human runner how the marathon runners look so different from the sprinters, right? And so this horse is a sprinter, a huge, huge muscle mass. Mm -hmm. But yeah, because we've got show horses, we've got people out showing, they're being successful. We've got breeders. The breeders are somewhat reluctant to admit that there is anything seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a diagnosis of a problem can result in a drop of value for their horses, both as show stock and as breeding stock. So, you know, if they've got stallions, if they've got mares, if they've got a lot of foals, you know, they might have a huge investment in some of these horses. So, but... You know, as time goes on, obviously, people are talking about it, people are noticing it, and, you know, there becomes a tacit acknowledgement that there is something going on, and it's kind of a syndrome. When we, you know, talk about syndromes, everyone's like, it's a bit of a mystery what it is, but we have something happening here. Yeah. So in 19, it wasn't until 1985 when the first study came out. So there's a lady called Dr. Judy A. Cox, and she presented a paper at the 1985 Convention of the American Association of Equine Practitioners. So that's basically the vet association for sure. the USA. And she wrote a paper called An Episodic Weakness in Four Horses Associated with Intermittent Serum Hyperkalemia and the Similarity of the Disease to Hyperkalemic Periodic Paralysis in Man. So that was the title of her paper. But her wow. yeah, her Who study could forget it. <laughs> her study only was on four horses. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I think again the the group of people wanting to contribute towards the actual naming of this thing and acknowledgement of this thing was maybe a fairly small group of people. Hmm. And so she had done a lot of research and found that back in the 1950s, there was a single human family cluster that had a very similar syndrome, so a very rare genetic disorder is what Mm. they were found to have. And it seemed to be almost the same as what she was seeing with these horses. So one family. Of centaurs. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. So right after uh, Dr. Cox had her paper published, another paper came out. So that was the following year, 1986, and it came out of Canada. Okay. So as I said, most of the horses that are dealing with this issue are down in the United States, but there were some in Canada. So... In Western Canada at that time, the only vet school was in Saskatoon. Okay. Uh, so the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, we now have a new one in Calgary, but up until a Upstarts. couple of years ago. Yeah. Up until a couple of years ago, the only vet school in Canada, Western Canada was the one in Saskatoon. And so... And the only one in Eastern Canada was in Guelph. Uh, yeah, Eastern Canada, Guelph, and then there's Prince Edward Island. So we had three oh, vet three, schools, three vet but schools. Prince Edward Island is very small. I think they had an intake of 12 a year or something. Wow. Yeah, hmm. very small. So there is a, a couple of doctors here. So Janet Sice and Jonathan Naylor. And so they published a paper in 86 called Episodic Muscle Tremors in Quarter Horses Resemblance to Hyperkalemic Paralysis. So they've narrowed it down to one breed, quarter horses. And so they were following a case history. Um, There is a Dr. Peach, and he had had a client who had a three-year-old quarter horse stallion. And this horse had experienced muscle tremors as a two-year-old. And the incidences occurred less than once a month. And both the owner and the vet were very much in acknowledgement of the problem and wanting to find a cure for the problem. So sent the horse to the university. Okay. And so the, and it came with a bunch of history. And so the vet and the owner had noted that the horse's symptoms were worse and more frequent when he was fed alfalfa. Okay. When this paper was presented to the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, or when, when the horse, not the paper, when the horse was presented to the College of Veterinary Medicine, he was in excellent physical condition. Mm. Physical exam found that he had no abnormalities. He was observed over a five-day period, and they they did kind of an interesting thing in that they worked him twice. They drew blood before and after exercise, and no abnormalities were noticed. Mm. And so these findings helped to rule out tying-up syndrome, which we had talked sure. about earlier. Sure. And then on his non, and then on in in 
on intermittent days, both work days and non-work days. They took um, needle electromyographic or EMG exams, and these displayed abnormally increased activity in all of the muscles examined. So they've decided it's not tying up, but he does obviously have some issue in the muscles themselves. They also switched his hay up, and so they changed his diet on purpose and observed that. So they had him on alfalfa one day. They also cold-hosed one leg one day to try and induce worsened clinical signs. So this is a method that works with humans that have that problem, paramytonia congenita, which is a similar disease. So Altogether, they worked with this horse for 15 months before presenting the paper. So they used dietary changes, they used diuretics. Then in that time frame, the owner reported that two more of her horses that were closely related to the stallion now also were displaying symptoms. So she started off with one, now she's got three. So in Stice and Naylor's paper, they, they said, and this is a quote, a number of established reports of periodic muscle spasm, occasionally culminating in death in certain lines of American show, horse, American show quarter horses are finding suggests that it suffered from a primary myopathy that has not been previously described in horses. And they went on to say the findings of one intermittent and unpredictable episodes of muscle tremors and stiffness in an otherwise clinically normal animal, and two, increased plasma potassium levels, but normal serum creatine kinase during an attack, and three, EMG evidence of increased muscle excitability between attacks, and four, a suspected familial predisposition differentiate this syndrome from other equine myopathies such as exertional rhabdomyolysis or hypothyroid myopathy. So again, they're they're ruling out um, tying up, etc. And so, yeah, they finished by saying, in summary, it is suggested that the horse described in this report was suffering from a primary myopathy, which had several features in common with hyperkalemic periodic paralysis in humans. So they've made the same... Sorry, what does kalemic mean? Maybe... uh... Oh, well, that's, I think, to do with hyperkalemic is hypercalcium, too much oh, okay. calcium. Too much and so calcium. Okay. that's why the alfalfa would affect that because alfalfa is very high in calcium. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, but that's, so we had Dr. Cox's paper in 85 and then this paper was in 86. And then we have to jump forward to 1989 before it was it was decided that it was undeniable that there's a problem with these horses and it does resemble human HYPP. So in horses, and it is specific to horses in the stock horse community. And so the two earlier papers had connected the equine syndrome to a similar human autosomal dominant inherited disorder, but they were not able at this time to have made a DNA link with the horses. Sure. And yeah, unfortunately, as we said earlier, the money that was involved in breeding and selling afflicted horses was huge because these were all show horses. Many of them were. And to make it worse, worse, many of the afflicted horses were highly successful in the show ring and they possessed the exact phenotype that the American Quarter Horse Association considered to be ideal according to their handbook and their judging standards. And so no one wanted to admit that anything was wrong with their horses. Well, by by that, by what you just said, then that means that these horses, whether they have that, they're all going to get lam- or a navicular cern anyway. So <laughs> yeah, have a totally much. different problem because yeah. of the yeah, and tiny I mean, feet. navicular was running through the quarter horse community at this time as well. Yeah. So concurrently with with this problem happening. So yeah, they there were a number of problems. So obviously, horses. Just so, just so listeners know, navicular is a is a uh, basic. At basically is a deterioration of a small bone at the heel of a horse's mm-hmm. horse's hoof so it can usually it affects the one of the ligaments that come down underneath the or tendon yeah a tendon Deflect i should say tendon, the, the, yeah. yeah that goes underneath and it can cause painful rubbing and that's that's navicular but anyway go on yeah here. okay in spite of the fact that no one is wanting to say you know my 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 winning show horses got this problem horses collapsing and dying has created an obvious animal welfare issue and additionally, ethically, legally, public image-wise, you know, there's there's trust issues as well in the equine industry. There's lots of issues that we're dealing with. Sure. So recognizing this, those at the helm of the American Quarter Horse Association 
ran with the idea that they need to do something. Okay. So, finally. Time for yeah. PR to take over. Yeah. So, yeah, this is 10 years after it started happening. So yeah. it took that long, but at least they are doing something. So they go to the University of Pennsylvania and the University of California at Davis to inquire about the possibility of doing studies on equine HYPP and developing some kind of genetic test. So we end up with a young lady called Sharon Spear, who is a vet. Um, she went to Texas A&M and then Davis, and she led UC Davis's 1989 study. So between January 1989 and December 1991, they got 600 samples, and she was able to look at those, and she they developed a computer program, and they took 100 samples from a number of different breeds. So yeah. they used thoroughbreds and quarter horses. They used males and females. And from this, 43 horses, so 42 males and one female, tested positive for a single copy of the gene. And no homozygotes were detected in this study. So the frequency of positive horses was higher than was normally seen or expected. What's a homozygote? Uh, two copies oh, of okay. the gene. Okay. So yeah, this each of the they, they were carriers basically, but yeah, they didn't have they had one copy of the gene, so they could pass it on if they were had the proper genetic mm -hmm. match, I guess. Yeah. So and we talked before about the Connemaras with the um, hoofwall separation syndrome. Mm -hmm. So like our pony Harris, his dad was the one that was the horse in question. Oh, great. <laughs> so, but Harris is a gelding. Yeah. So. If he has it, he's not going to pass it on. Sure. But his chance of getting it mm -hmm. was 50-50, yeah. basically. So he, if he has it, he has, like, he's heterozygote, right? He only has one one copy of the gene, so he doesn't exhibit. But he could pass it on to another one if he was a stallion and he mated with a mare who had one or two copies and their foal had two, then he could have been the dad of a baby that had this thing. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's how that works. Okay, so the study that Dr. Spear did came up with three significant findings. So they did land on a definitive diagnosis. So it is HYPP, which they had suspected for a while. They identified how the disease functioned, and they identified a genetic link with the disease. So she put out a paper called Hyperkalemic Periodic Paralysis in Horses that was published in the Journal of American Veterinary Medical Association. And it's historical, and it was the first one to identify an equine disorder arising from a causative mutation. So first time they did DNA testing, basically. Hmm. So the findings from this study were printed in the September 1992 Quarter Horse Journal. And Dr. Spear also presented the findings of her paper to the American Association of equine practitioners at their November 30th, 1992 conference. And it was at that time, Dr. Spear revealed the name of the stallion whose offspring were affected. One horse. One horse caused All this. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. The news broke more slowly in the quarter horse community. In December of 1992, information was published in the quarter horse journal that affected horses came from just one bloodline. So in January of 1993, Dr. Spear revealed the name of the stallion whose offspring were affected, and his name was Impressive. <laughs> well, I guess he was impressive. He was because yeah. all those horses were really good show show yes. horses. Yeah. At the time of these studies, Impressive was the preeminent quarter horse halter sire in the USA. So his offspring were considered to be of an ideal type. Again, as we said, as outlined by the American Quarter Horse Association official handbook on breed traits. They were frequent winners in halter classes up to and including the world or national level. 30 of Impressive's first generation foals went on to become world champions. And in 1992, 13 of the 15 U.S. national champions were either first, second, or third generation descendants of Impressive. So that's a year that he was named as being the horse responsible for all this. 13 of the 15 top horses at the national level show were his descendants. Hmm. Yeah. What a messed up system. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at the height of his popularity, Impressive stood for a stud fee of $25,000. And even today, he sits at, as the number one or number five all-time leading quarter horse sire due to points earned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 
At the time of his death, he died at age 27 in 1995, Impressive would have a total of 2,250 foals on the ground from 24 crops. So compared to Secretariat, 663 foals. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He covered a lot of mares. Yeah, they made their money from this horse. Okay, so today there are over 350,000 descendants of Impressive in the world, and many of them carry the gene for HYPP. So by the time the gene was isolated, tens of thousands of horses were affected, starting with one horse. Hmm. So yeah, Impressive was actually purpose-bred to be a racehorse. He was an appendix thoroughbred. So I said that my, my quarter horse I had that was a half quarter horse was... Only half a quarter horse. She was also half thoroughbred, so she was okay. an appendix yeah, thoroughbred. Yeah. Um, and this is a very common. So an appendix, for, an appendix thoroughbred is a is appendix a, quarter horse. Appendix, yeah. Sorry, appendix quarter horse. Half quarter horse, half uh, thoroughbred. Half thoroughbred. Okay. Yeah. And who was that? Phoenix. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, horse. Uh, so appendix thoroughbred is half thoroughbred, half quarter horse. And unlike some breeds, like thoroughbred, if you have a thoroughbred, the mom has to be a thoroughbred, the dad has to be a thoroughbred. Each of their parents has to be thoroughbreds, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. And you can, like with my horse Archie that I have now, who's a thoroughbred, I can go to pedigree.com and type in his name. Yeah. And then I can go back five generations. I can hit one of those ones. I go back five generations, hit one of those ones, go back five generations, and keep going back 300 years. And every horse in his pedigree will be a thoroughbred. Yeah. And there's lots of other breeds that are the same. Arabians, etc. Uh-huh. But there are breeds that allow outside influences to breed into their gene pool. Okay. And Connemaras were one of them. Connemara didn't become a registry until 1920. And if we I look see. at Harris's pedigree, he has some thoroughbreds in there, and hmm. there's a couple of Arabs in there. And I know at one point they bred in. Well, that explains um, his cuteness. Yes. Um, they bred like some Andalusian type horses or Iberian horses in as well, just mm-hmm. to get different traits. A little bit, they wanted a bigger horse, which is why, and a little bit more athletic horse, which is why they bred them with a thoroughbred. Sure. They wanted the little bit prettier face. That's why they introduced the Arabian, etc. Mm-hmm. So they introduced different breeds for a reason but is there with, a time where they lock it off though and it's kind of like i think okay, right now this yeah. is we're not we're not adding yeah. anything else now this is the perfect conamera we can't yeah i think that's where they're at right now and okay. i think it probably happened in the 1950s so looking back i don't think anything prior to 1960 is not conamera okay. but yeah with quarter horses you could take your pure thoroughbred stallion and get him approved as a quarter horse sire and so he can breed quarter horses and then those babies can be registered um, and go to the track or go to shows and compete in quarter horse shows even though they're like technically half only half quarter horse Hmm. or an eighth of a horse as my joke Um, (laughs) keep it going yeah so yeah, he was purpose-bred to be a racehorse so he was an appendix so half thoroughbred and so on April 15th, 1968, a guy called Nick Miner of Oklahoma had a colt on the ground who was by the thoroughbred stallion Lucky Bars. And this is the important thing. Well, I think it's important. Uh, Lucky Bars sire was called Three Bars. Okay. So the, the baby's mother uh, was a quarter horse mare called Glamour Bars. And her grandfather on her sire line was the horse Lucky Bars. And then her great-grandfather on her mother's side was the horse Lucky Bars. What? How come there's so many Lucky Bars? <laughs> well, because he's inbred. He's totally inbred. Okay. Yeah. So his, basically his dad, and then on his other side, his grandma, and on the, um, and then on his mom, his mom's grandma or yeah. grandpa and great-grandpa were Lucky Bars, and then they breed her to a, to Lucky Bars. It was ridiculous. <laughs> but it, no one would do that, but they did that, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, so, but the guy was well aware of it because his plan was to name this, this colt Triple Bars. That was what he was going to name him. He just had the name Triple Bars, so he just figured out a way to do it. Yeah, well, he... he the name was, came first. He was going to call him Triple Bars with two Ps. Why? Well, probably there was another Triple Bars, but oh, okay. he was... He was bound and determined that the baby was going to be called Triple Bars. Also, he insisted that with only one P, it was triple. Yeah, that's right. He's the real, he's the real uh, word in it. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, the following year, the Colt got sold to some people called Blair and Nancy Folk, and that was for $3,000. But he was, even as a young horse of only a year old, he was impressively muscular. Hmm. Um, And so they decided to change his name and were successfully able to edit the paperwork before it went through to the AQHA. And so they changed his name from Triple Bars to Impressive. Oh. Ah, that's why he got named that. So, but he was impressive. Um, <laughs> he he's been described as also, Arnold... but it also kind of hides his yeah his suspect his, yeah. his suspect right heritage yeah his um, so, heritage. hides his sus- suspect heritage, but also hides it's like you can't see the forest for the trees situation because why is this horse that's only a year old why does it have such huge muscles it's just sitting around the field doing nothing yeah but his muscles are just they can't shut off right yeah Yeah. so they're twitching all the time and they're growing and growing and growing but people just kind of don't logically think why they're just kind of think wow i can make some money out of that so yeah, he was described as Arnold Schwarzenegger of the horse world. He was so impressively muscled. His breeder had a last-minute change of heart and tried to buy him back. He offered the folks $500 not to take him, but they turned him down. And so off they drove. But he he actually, in, in addition to looking good, he had a great attitude. He was a great horse to work with, very sure. pleasant. And as we said, great confirmation, like straight legs, you know, nice face, well-proportioned. So they took him, although he was supposed to be a racehorse, they took him into the show pen. But for some reason, uh, to begin with, his win rate was only about 50%. Folk then changed his halter from the typical big, thick quarter horse halter to a very small Arabian show halter for, again, he's just being led around the ring. He's not a performance horse. That would show off his size or his face rather and his size even more. And then he then won his next two outings. But it was at these last two shows that a guy called Dean Landers saw him. And he ended up paying the folks $20,000 for the horse. So mm. they had not that much earlier paid three grand, And now he's up to 20000 And so Dean Landers showed him very heavily for the rest of the year. He And he finished the season undefeated in 20 outings. So as soon as Landers got him, he just won everything. Well, you know what that is? What? Impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was still only two years old at that time. And again, his shows were all all halter classes and he he was only being judged on his physique so at the end of the season he changed hands again and he was sold to a guy called fennel brown for an undisclosed sum and brown ended up taking him back to the racetrack which was where his original place was supposed to be so he went with a trainer called charlie champion and Um, so between, um, hard name to live up to. mm -hmm, Yeah. It ended up being the case. So while he was in training with Charlie champion, they turned out down an offer of a hundred thousand dollars. So yeah, in a very short time, this horse has gone from 3000 to 20,000 to an undisclosed sum up to a hundred thousand. But as a racehorse, impressive was a washout. His crew cited that his musculature, which had made him so successful in the show ring, was a detriment to his career as a mm. racehorse. So, yeah, see that. yeah, they pivoted, went back to the show pen. It was thought that he could have a career as a breeding stallion beyond that. But because he was an appendix quarter horse, this would limit the number of mares that he would be allowed to cover. But there is a loophole in that uh, he could move from appendix status to full approved registered quarter horse status if he earned enough points in the show ring or was approved through two inspections. So around this time, diagnostics were undertaken and it was determined that he was suffering from pedalostitis. So he wasn't able to basically perform as a riding horse in performance classes. Mm -hmm. Because his coffin bone was deteriorating. Yes, and... Um, the, just so people know, once again, the coffin bone is the bone in the hoof uh, uh, of a horse. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so sometimes it'll start to uh, break apart. Right. And, and I it's actually, not even shaped like a coffin. No. It's a weird name. No, it's shaped like the hoof. And I read an interesting thing uh, about pedalostitis recently, and it described pedalostitis as the diagnosis of last resort. Because, uh, really? Yeah. They said, and they were questioning whether there even was such a thing. 
Um, yeah, that's a good, good point. Yeah, because, you know, maybe it's this, no, maybe it's this, no, maybe it's this, no, maybe it's this, no, uh, pedalastitis, I guess it fits the bill. And so at least we have some kind of a diagnosis. Yeah. The horse is lame. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the bottom line with pedalastitis. You have a lame horse. Sure. So, yeah, these people have a lame horse. So Impressive is now an unsuitable candidate for any performance events. But in 1971, Brown arranges for the two inspections, which they had a positive outcome, and Impressive was awarded registered status. He continued to show the horse extensively in halter classes and turned down an offer of $150,000 for the horse. So a year later, he turned down an offer of $300,000 for the horse. Impressive started the trend of stock horse judges favoring heavy, bulky muscling due to his own heavy but impressive musculature. And then in 1974, that was the first year that the American Quarter Horse Association held what they called the World Championship Quarter Horse Show. World champion. It's mainly the United States. <laughs> yeah, now, we, know. Yeah. we all know about the World Series here. Yeah, yeah, same diff. So, yeah. So, impressive place first in the age stallion class. He was a five-year-old. Following this, he competed in one more show and then was retired to the breeding shed. So, he had 48 career points. 1975 was his first year as a stallion, and he debuted as number two on the AQHA's list of halter winners. 1976, he was number two on the list of leading sires of point-earning halter horses. Uh, Brown capitalized on the horse's popularity, and over the next two decades, as we said before, he covered an incredible number of mares, so way more than most other breeds do. Hmm. So, yeah, that's who the horse was. So Is that we, because they don't require a live coverage? He was actually doing live cover oh, okay. by the sound of it. Hmm. But I think with thoroughbreds, I think they're they're trying to I think they value the horse maybe a little bit more. Okay. Yeah, this guy was just making money yeah. on his lame horse. <laughs> yeah. Because the lame, horse was lame. La- it was lame, and also yeah. it was obviously a genetic nightmare. Mm-hmm. Lame, but everyone wanted to have a horse like that, mm-hmm. which is the weird thing about showing horses, but also breeding dogs. I was going to say, know? any kind of breeding has yeah. an artificial element to it that's detrimental to, mm-hmm. the, to, the, animal. Bre- to the yeah. breed and to the animal. Yeah. yeah, ultimately, like pug dogs or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. you get those things that... You know, people are thinking it's so cute, it looks so great, but the fact that this animal is going to have a shortened life and probably not a very happy or healy life, yeah, but yeah, we've got the dog with a cute little smashed up face, so <laughs> we're happy anyway, so a little bit more about now looking at this um hyperkalemic periodic paralysis because they do have a diagnosis of that, so sometimes it's called impressive disease because. Yeah, the horse world knows Impressive is a guy that is re- responsible for it. So HYPP is an autosomal dominant did inherited his, did disorder. Did his owner, owner fight this uh, charge? They didn't really go into it. I think he tried to poo-poo it quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, obviously, you know, if it's going to affect, yeah, affect his bottom line, then yeah, he, he wouldn't embrace it for sure. Yeah. So as we said earlier, it was first discovered in a single human family cluster in 1956, and it's also known as Gamstorp disease. Mm-hmm. So HYPP is an autosomal dominant as an individual, so male or female, with just one mutated, mutated copy of the gene can show symptoms. So that means that car- carriers of one gene can show symptoms, while a horse carrying the mutation on both genes is a, an elevated or increased risk. Okay. So, unfortunately, the mutation has variable penetration, which means that some individuals who do have the gene do not exhibit symptoms. So, you can't just say, oh, that horse doesn't have symptoms, he doesn't have it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so HYPP was one of the first genetic disorders elucidated in a horse and displays a simple or Mendelian pattern of genetic inheritance. Hmm. So the horse impressive was born with a missense or substitution mutation in a particular gene. This mutation is a single spelling error where the single C base, so is SCN4A gene, um, the C base is replaced by another base G in the gene resulting in a defective sodium channel in the skeletal muscles. So this produced impressive hallmark musculature, but it also inadvertently resulted in the origin of the HYPP disease in the equine world. 
So this gene codes for a protein that functions as a sodium channel in skeletal muscle cells, but with HYPP, the protein is mutated and produces an altered alpha chain of the skeletal muscle's sodium channels. And these sodium channels act as a pore in the muscle membrane that controls contractions in the muscle fibers. But the defective gene results in the channels becoming leaky. And the leaky channels cause the muscle cells to be more easily excitable and causing them to contract involuntarily. So that's why mm -hmm. the muscles get bigger. The prolonged contraction times allow excessive movement of calcium from muscle cells into the bloodstream. And so that's the condition called hyperkalemia. So, yeah, hyperkalemia literally means too much calcium in the blood. So it creates a situation where the muscles contract more readily, ultimately resulting in tremors or paralysis. And I saw a thing, and some dog breeds can get this as well. Hmm. So horses with HYPP display multiple episodes of muscle spasms, concurrent weakness, and paralysis over their lifetimes, although for some individuals, the symptoms may reduce as the horse gets older. The clinical signs are continued muscle twitches that start in the face, as we talked about earlier, and progress through the body. And so this causes muscle, muscle, muscle fatigue <laughs> and paralysis. The severity of episodes varies from horse to horse and also from episode to episode. So they can have a very bad episode, then a mild one and a mild one and a mild one, and then another bad one. So. Mm -hmm. While the majority of genetic mutations are not compatible with survival, the genic, genetic mutations causing HYPP produces a functional but altered sodium channel. Death can result in severe episodes due to the respiratory paralysis in the upper airway, and which would result in respiratory failure. But the majority of HYPP horses survive their episodes. Many are useful and functional, either for pleasure riding or in the show ring. And again, we talked about the environment that can negatively influence, influence the horse's predisposition. So the dietary factors, things like high potassium, stress being another factor. And then exercise restriction can also bring on an episode. So... um with the, I don't know if you're going to go into this. If you are, just you can say it, you'll answer it soon. But do they have like a way of restricting like the spread of this now, or do they do genetic testing at all? All mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So yeah. So basically, a definitive diagnosis is made on occurrence of clinical signs. So they wait till the horse exhibits signs, and then yeah. a positive DNA test for the mutation. So they there is a test. But the weird thing is, and I have such a hard time believing this the mutation is not the result of inbreeding he is so so inbred <laughs> but they say it's not because of inbreeding anyway i guess there's a lot of inbreeding in 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 stock anyway in stock mm -hmm. animals anyhow so maybe they just figure they're already so so inbred that it's yeah. really yes yeah Anyway, I, I doubt that, but whatever. That's, that's just me. Okay, so it says, it is unfortunate that the mutant gene Are you was, doubting my guesswork? <laughs> the mutant gene was able to become so inadvertently widespread, but this happened as a result of a phenomenon referred to as the popular stallion effect, where multiple clients breed mares to a popular stallion in order to get what they believe to be a positive quality, like in this case, people going after the heavy musculature, which yeah. ultimately was the primary symptom of this disease. Mm -hmm. um, so the disease stands out because its spread was hastened by the advent of the use of artificial insemination in horses and, in effect, promoted by breeders. Oh, so he wasn't just doing live color yeah. cover. He was artificial, art, artificially inseminating mares. So, yeah, widespread. Mm -hmm. um, well, that would explain why it's happening all over the country mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also notable because the identity, identity of the impressive gene in 1992 was one early milestone in the quest for the map of genetic makeup of the horse. The release of impressive name as the index sire of HYPP, a single horse to be traced to the horse whose descendant carried the defective gene, rocked the stock horse world. <laughs> so lots of money had changed hands to get Impressive's award-winning descendants. The quarter horse ideal, as written up in the AQA official handbook, was basically a description of impressive. Okay. Yeah. 
While many had suspected the disorder was in the impressive line early on, people were hesitant to stop breeding to impressive as his offspring were the big winners. Sure. So it became a self-perpetuating thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Breeders had made huge investments in buying his progeny. Artificial insemination had opened up for horses and was being used extensively and with great vigor, which allowed for an accelerated spread of the defective gene. Mm. And yeah, the, the, the gene was in effect promoted by breeders. So the initial research showed that all of the horses that were tested positive traced back to impressive, as we had said earlier, in either first, second, or third generation. The majority of them were second or third generation. And further research proved that HYPP was not found in any other quarter horse lineage or any other breed. So in 1993, the American Quarter Horse Association earmarked $100,000 for additional research on HYPP, and they made a commitment to educate and inform their members as well. Hmm. So push was then made for the development of a genetic test that could definitively diagnose the disorder. And in 1994, a test was perfected that could be used on either blood or hair. Since that time, the American Quarter Horse Association has offered the testing kit for a very reasonable sum of $35. Okay. Uh, In 1995, a year later, he died at the age of 27, again, having sired over 2,000 fools. Yeah, he was worn out. Yep. In 1997, the American Quarter Horse Association revised their official handbook. In rule number 2005, under traits, it was added, HYPP is among the conditions commonly considered to be an undesirable trait or genetic defect. Hmm. In 1998, the next year, the American Quarter Horse Association made it a requirement that all foals carrying HYPP bloodlines have notifications placed on their registration papers recommending testing. This step was taken to encourage people to get their horses tested and to help avoid people who are breeding and selling HYPP horses on to unsuspecting buyers. So in 1999, the American Quarter Horse Association went on one step further and required all potential carriers to be tested prior to registration. So five years later, 2004, at the AQHA conference, a motion was passed to set January 1st, 2007 as a date after which all foals that tested homozygous could no longer be eligible for registration. So if you had a baby and it took a long time. Yeah, it did take a long time. 12 years later. Yeah. And yeah. So as of January 1st, 2007, the American Quarter Horse Association amended Rule 205C3 and Rule 227 Section E to require that all impressive progeny needed to be parent verified and HYPP tested as per Rule 205 and any homozygous foals were declared ineligible for registration. That same year, on the same date, the Palomino Registry disallowed the registration of any heterozygous or homozygous foal. On the same day, that same year, the Appaloosa Registry disallowed any homozygous foal. In 2013, 70 scientists from 23 countries met and agreed to collaborate on a gene mapping project to better understand this disease. And today, 1 in 50 quarter horses still carry the HYPP gene. Hmm. So one lab Easy. carrying out tests has found that they are now seeing 9% of quarter horses being heterozygous for HYPP, while 25% of paints tested are heterozygous. So no animals tested to date have been homozygous. The first foaling year of an HYPP positive horse was 1977. So the foaling years with the highest frequency of HYPP positive horses was between 1984 and 1987. So homozygous horses are affected more serious than heterozygous. Paying attention to the results of genetic testing and having suspect horses tested prior to breeding will help to reduce the incident through making informed breeding decisions. However, it should be noted that the strain cannot be weakened or bred out over time. So breeders should practice selective breeding and are encouraged to not breed homozygotes, thereby working toward the goal of breeding out heterozygotes completely over time, effectively eliminating the disease. And then dietary management is important with HYPP horses, so all high potassium feeds should be avoided. And then horses should also be fed little and often, etc. They need regular exercise and turnout, and there are a couple 
medications that are effective. But yeah, quite a thing, considering it was all started with one horse. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. That was very interesting, dear. Only one problem. What? There was no murder. Oh, but there were dead horses. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's a mystery. That was a mystery. It was a medical mystery this yeah, week. Okay, was, well. That was our first medical mystery. After last week's me- mur- <laughs> mayhem and murder, this was a more this medical mystery. We like we like M's here at, at Horse Mysteries, mm-hmm. whether they're murder and mayhem or medical mysteries. Right. Well, that was very interesting. Thank you for that. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Well, you know what? You know what I didn't do? I didn't see if there's any comments on the uh, oh. website, and I don't think there were. So uh, if there were, I apologize. I'll read them next time. But hey, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to contact us, go to sneakydragon.com. That is our sister podcast. And if you go to the website, you'll find the episodes there of this podcast. And you are welcome, nay, in fact, encouraged to leave a comment about the episode. When we have an opportunity, we'll read them out. And if you'd like to send an email, we have an email address, which is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. And we'd love to hear from you from there. And folks, we are available on iTunes and on other podcast catchers. So did I say iTunes? I meant to say Apple Podcasts. That is a new name for the thing that existed for 20 years of my life or more. And so you can go to Apple Podcasts. You can find our podcast there. And we'd love for you to leave a review or at least rate it. Five stars is preferable. And you'll feel good about yourself. No one feels good after they leave a three-star review. No one does. Five-star reviews. That, that's the way to go. I don't want honesty. Just five-star reviews, everyone. <laughs> so uh, thank you for listening to the show this week. We'll see you again in two weeks. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye.